You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Our Father, we are thankful for this evening, for your word to us, for this context in which we can gather as your people under your word. We pray now that you would make much of Christ, our advocate and our older brother. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Man, this is great. I have never preached from the back of a truck nor like sat in a truck cab uh, right before getting up here to preach. This is just a regular old hootenanny. Uh, well, good evening, everyone. If I haven't met you, I'm Nathan. I'd love to meet you afterwards over a cup of coffee that maybe, <laughs> never mind. Uh, it's gone. It's gone. Uh, but uh, we are so glad to be able to join you all here this evening on this, our, our fourth anniversary together as our church. It's so good to be outside under the sun. Uh, a tiny reminder that not all things are terrible these days. What a great day. Uh, everyone in the world, though, does recognize that there is some degree of terribleness to some degree or the other. Everyone in the world knows that not all things are right in the world, and everyone in the world is looking for answers to make the world right. Many might look around at the world and their own unhappiness, perhaps even, and think, like, if only the vaccines were out and more readily available. Still others might think, if we could just get the right people elected on Tuesday, or if the economy was doing this or that, or if those in power were acting in this way or that, if I could only get the right job, if I could only marry the right person, if I could only marry a different person, Things will be right in the world, or at least in my life. Many in the world think today that all the problems in the world are indeed out there. And the solution must also be outside, to fix all of those outside problems. On the other hand, if you were to find yourself, I don't know why, like wandering into Barnes & Noble, remember those bookstores, or even just to get onto Amazon, entire sections of books are dedicated to self-help, Self-care, issues of money, diet, popularity, education. Oprah Winfrey once said that while there are indeed certainly problems out there, the answer she prescribed for us was to look within. She said, this place of connecting to something deeper within ourselves is available at every moment. The more stressful and chaotic things are on the outside, the calmer I have to get on the inside. I can just go inside myself, go back to my center, and remember what is most important. And there's some truth to what she's saying. But she's saying that while there are indeed problems that out there on the outside, the, problem, the, the solution to that is not a solution from the outside, but the solution is to find the problems, or the solution from, to the problems on the inside. Now, while the, the Bible certainly does have lots to say about the problems out there, the overwhelming theme and story of the Bible is not the problem or problems out there, but the problem in here. Unlike Oprah, the Bible teaches that, in fact, the answer or solution to the problems within do not come from within, but come from outside. This Sunday, we're going to take just a one-week break to consider these few verses from the letter of 1 John. And 1 John is all about problems and solutions. 
It's about fellowship with God, what, what prevents fellowship with God, and how things are ultimately made right. Tonight, we're just going to spend a few minutes thinking about just a couple of verses, and we're going to think through these verses in 1 John 1 and 2 in two sections, thinking about the problem of our sin and then the solution of our sin. Before we actually get to these uh, first two verses in chapter 2 that Crystal read, John, or John said, my little children, I am writing these things to you. So what is he saying when he's saying, I'm writing these things? Well, throughout chapter 1, John has talked about seeing and beholding the glory of Christ. And then he straight out says why he is writing this letter. If you have your Bible, in chapter 1, verse 3, John tells you why he is writing this letter. That you might have fellowship with us. That is, that you would share in the fellowship with the triune God that we, his, uh, the apostles and those whom he is with, that he is writing this letter in, that they are experiencing. If you have fellowship with us, he is saying, then you have fellowship with God. He's not saying fellowship th- to God through us, but fellowship with us as we fellowship with God. So that you might know God, that you might enjoy God. And then he goes on to say in verse 5 that the main message that the apostles heard from Jesus was this. Perhaps surprisingly, if you were to sum up the message of Jesus, what might you say? What might you expect John to say as he heard Jesus teach for those many years? But he says in verse 5 that this is the message of Jesus, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. We start here. We start with God. If we miss that God is light, the holiness of God, then we miss everything else about the world. We'll miss the the magnitude, the reality of our sin, our darkness in light of God's light. We'll minimize the, the effects of our sin and how it actually prevents fellowship, joy with God. So very pastorally and compassionately, John says in chapter two, verse one, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Now, he's already said that no one is completely without sin. But in verse 1, he's trying to get us to understand that sin is not just bad habits. Not just an occasional mistake or a slip up. But in its full darkness, in in light of the full light of God, sin is utter and brazen turning of your worship from God to yourself. Sin is killing you. John seems to be implying. He's asking, don't you see? Don't you see how it, it, it disrupts your fellowship with God? How it disrupts your fellowship with others? Don't you see how, how you, when you are worshiping other things other than God, how it is causing so much wreckage, so much joylessness in your life? So he says at the end of chapter 1 that if you are saying that sin isn't a big deal and that God is just going to Maybe wink at it. Maybe just shrug it off. Well, then you don't have a right view of God's holiness, and then you do not have a right view of your sin. So he says, therefore, my little children, I'm an old man now. I have seen the glory of Jesus and what perfect righteousness looks like, and it has caused me to see myself clearly. Perhaps he's thinking about His dear friend Peter, who when he saw Jesus for who Jesus was, 
Peter said, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. How many of us have that kind of reverence for Christ that when we are in his presence, we might, apart from the work of Christ, think, whoa, this is much more than just, I don't know, some guru, some, some counselor, some spiritual leader. Now John is reflecting on his own life and seeing the de- devastating effects of sin in his life and in others, and therefore then he is writing these things to his audience and therefore to us so that we may not sin. He's saying, I am longing for you to want satisfying fellowship with God more than the things that promise satisfaction but then never deliver. I long for you to hate your sin because you see it as ugly, as twisted, as misdirected, soul-killing worship. The problem of sin is gigantic. It's cosmic. It has fractured your fellowship with an eternal and holy God. In just the day-to-day moments of misdirected worship in our life. And so the problem, beloved, isn't outside of you, but it is within. The problem with the world, with the universe, is here. And if the problem is within, then the solution then certainly cannot be within either. We will never find or muster enough um, willpower or self-care to make this kind of selfishness, this kind of self-worship just go away. Which seems very hopeless. The bad news of the bad news actually is very bad news. But then makes the good news of the good news very good news indeed. Which now gets us to the solution of our sin. Keep reading in verse 1 of chapter 2. John says, But if anyone does sin, which again is all of us, as he explained in the second half of chapter 1, then we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And we don't use this word a ton these days, perhaps uh, thinking like a, maybe a, a social worker, an advocate. But an advocate is just someone who speaks on someone else's behalf. The modern courtroom lawyer is a great example of an advocate. The defense lawyer knows the law much better than I do. The defense lawyer has uh, gone to law school, has passed the bar exam, is uh, legally certified to defend me. But what is a defense lawyer actually doing? Well, a defense lawyer is trying to prove your innocence. If he is or she is arguing on your behalf. Your defense lawyer is trying to prove your innocence. That is why sometimes the reputation of defense lawyers can be less than stellar. Now, I'm a firm believer in innocent until proven guilty, and I think our justice system should provide good lawyers for guilty people. But even the best defense lawyers sometimes know that their client is indeed guilty, and they still try to argue the case to make the system prove that they are innocent. It's a good thing but perhaps arguing the case as if the defendant is innocent. And that's the reality of the charges that are indeed brought against us as every human being. That I, the defendant, know that I am guilty. I, along with the witnesses, the spectators, the judge himself, know that I am guilty. I have not lived my life in perfect love for God and in perfect love for my neighbor. Even My defense lawyer knows that I am guilty. But what makes Jesus Christ, the righteous, our advocate, different than a defense lawyer? Jesus is not trying to argue 
or prove my innocence, but he argues on behalf of his innocence. He doesn't try to show my goodness. He shows his goodness, an astounding advocate. And what is the title that John gives to Jesus in verse 1? What does John call him? He calls him Jesus Christ the righteous, which is enormously important. In order for God to be just and for Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf to be worth anything, Jesus must be perfectly righteous, perfectly obeying the law when we did not. Jesus lives the life that we should have lived and died the death that we should have died. And having lived and died for us, what does John say about Jesus? In verse 2, he says he is the propitiation for our sins. Now, if we don't use the word advocate very much, we certainly don't use this word in wider culture, even in our church culture perhaps. What is propitiation? Simply, propitiation is a sacrifice that quenches or absorbs God's wrath. And that is that our sin deserves God's wrath. I don't think we like that idea very much. Thinking about like a, perhaps an, a, an angry or out of control God, but that is not the case. It is good that God is just. That he cannot and will not tolerate our daily and active rebellion. That he hates that we are ruining ourselves and ruining the world. Sin is completely against the nature of God. Remember, God is light and God hates it. And we should want him to hate sin. But if Jesus is the propitiation for our sin, if he quenches and absorbs God's wrath, God's wrath against our sin is now poured out onto Jesus so that we are now looked favorably upon by God. And not just moving out of our enemy of God status, but then as we progress into chapter 2 and chapter 3 of 1 John, we see that we are moved into his beloved children. Look at what John says in chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Now I think if we were to write that verse, we might write that differently. If we confess our sins, God will be what? What might we fill in those blanks with? I think we might say something like, if we confess our sins, God is merciful, God is gracious, God is kind to forgive us our sins. That's not what John says. He says that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. I think we tend to think about Jesus going on our behalf before God the Father, asking for mercy on our behalf. Jesus goes to the Father for like the 10,000th time, and he's like, I know it's, it's Sherman again. For the 10,000th time, he screwed up again, Father, but please, please just give him another chance, just 10,001, give him the 10,001st chance. And then God the Father begrudgingly like lets us off the hook again. That's not what John says. God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. In his wonderful little, little book, J.D. Greer says in this book, Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart, which is a provocative, provocative title, title for a book. But he says this, the basis of God's forgiveness is not mercy, but is justice. Jesus paid the full penalty of our sin. Not an ounce of, our, of, of judgment remains. It would be unjust for God to hold the sins of Christians against them any longer, for he would be requiring two penalties for the same sin. You see what he's saying? 
He says, if your spouse pays the power bill, and then the power company comes and sends you the same bill and asks you to pay, you would rightly protest that as unjust. Two payments for the same bill. In the same way, for God to exact one drop of punishment for the believer for his sin would be requiring two penalties for the same sin. Jesus suffered the full extent of God's judgment, and all that is left for me is acceptance. The reason he titled this book, Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart, is because J.D. Greer got baptized four times as a small child and as a teenager. He would ask Jesus into his heart, then he would be baptized, then he would continue to see sin in his life. He would come to the conclusion, well, well, I guess that first time of asking Jesus into my heart, and then that first time of baptism didn't really take. It didn't really do the job. So then he would decide to ask Jesus into his heart again, get baptized again, and maybe this time, this time it'll, it'll be the one. Try again and again and again. Now so much of 1 John is about examining our hearts, about examining our lives, about finding assurance in, evidences of, in the evidences of God's grace in our life, evidence of our salvation. But do you see what J.D. Greer was doing? as a young man, and what I think so many of us do as well. He was waiting to clean himself up before actually trusting in the finished work of Christ. Waiting to trust in his own work of sinlessness before he was trusting in Jesus' work of sinlessness. The problem with mere self-examination is you're never going to like what you see. You'll never be without sin. In fact, the more you grow in grace, the more aware of sin you will actually become. And so, as we've said a few times in the past four years, if I were to ask you, Christian, if you're a Christian, when did God save you? There's a lot of truth to the answer. If you were to answer that question, when did God save you? If you were to answer 2,000 years ago, on a cross, on a hill, just outside of Jerusalem, If you're a Christian, there was certainly a moment of conversion in your life when you trusted in that work of Christ on your behalf. But the work of salvation occurred for you 2,000 years ago when Jesus said, it is finished, and he meant it. And he has borne the wrath of God, that he has appeased the wrath of God, that he has taken the punishment and consequences for sin so that you will not have to, so that I will not have to, that you, when you are trusting in him, united to him by faith, you will not have to bear the judgment of God any longer. Salvation is accomplished. Salvation was accomplished 2,000 years ago. I think perhaps theologically we understand the imagery of God's wrath being poured out on Christ on the cross, but I think too often we fear that Christ, that while God the Father has poured out the wrath of cross the, the, on Christ on the cross, He has left just a few drops. He's held on a few drops just, just for later, just for when He really screws up again and again and again. So when God get, gets really angry at us, He's got a few more drops to pour out on us. But this could not be any further from the truth. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins because of Jesus Christ, the righteous, the propitiation for our sins. Like, there's a big, big difference 
and me disciplining my children in love because I want the most for them. I want flourishing joy in their life, so I discipline them. There's a big difference in that and me just like sitting over in the corner, just watching them, waiting for them to screw up so I can just go off the handle, pounce on them and condemn them as worthless little Shermans. And yet I think that we so often think about that, think about God the Father in just the same way. Just constantly disappointed. Constantly with his arms crossed, waiting to pounce in condemnation. Are you waiting for, for God to just pour his wrath out on you at any moment? Right now, though, are you trusting in the finished work of Christ 2,000 years ago that finally and fully absorbs God's just anger and instead turns it to great love, to great acceptance, to great joy in you as a son or daughter. Tonight is the night of salvation. If you have not trusted in this, tonight is the night of assurance if you have trusted in this. If this gospel doesn't do and stir something in you, perhaps the best thing that we can do is not to move from this place and get in our cars and just muster up more faith, muster up more good works. What we must do is to leave this place preaching to ourselves, preaching the finished work of Christ, not listening to voices of condemnation in our souls, but preaching words of assurance to ourselves. A few minutes ago, Kara led us in a song written by Charles Wesley in 1742, a song that we sing to ourselves, that we use to preach to ourselves. Arise, my soul, arise. I have no idea what Wesley was thinking about or dwelling on as he wrote that song, but I would not be surprised in the slightest if the morning that he wrote that song that he was thinking through 1 John 1 and 2. When he writes, My God is reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child. I can no longer fear. So with confidence I now draw nigh. I draw near. With confidence I draw nigh. And then, Father, Abba, Father, cry. He cries out to God as Father, knowing him as a good Father who has welcomed him. We trust in the sacrifice of those five bleeding wounds rather than our ability to clean ourselves up. We are reconciled to God. Or as I've once heard, justification, that of having our sins forgiven through Christ, justification not only moves us out of the courtroom, but into the family room. Is that good news? Moving us out from just the courtroom of sin and justice, but then moves us into the family room of God's warmth and kindness. Oh, my soul, arise. Behold the risen Christ, your great high priest, your spotless sacrifice. Oh, my soul, arise. Preach this to yourself, Christ Church. Arise, my soul. God owns you as his child. Shake off your guilty fears, my soul. Arise. We are sufficient to come forward and boldly approach the throne of grace, not because of anything that we have done to make ourselves sufficient 
but because of what Christ has done. No longer wallowing in our shame or in our guilt, but in confidence, in assurance, and now of greater and deeper love. And so we often need to preach to ourselves to remember what is actually reality. We need remembering because we are a forgetful people. And so we're going to continue to do this every Sunday until the Lord returns or he takes us all. We're going to continue to meet and gather, to put ourselves under God's word, to sing his praises, to pray to him together, to confess our sins, to be assured of our pardon because we are so forgetful. We will forget these things. By the time you go to sleep tonight, you will have have forgotten in some small ways that Christ has lived and died for you, absorbing the the full justice of God, now bringing you into the family room of God. And so we need reminding. And so we're going to keep doing this forever. (laughs) As we've often said, you can only backslide so far in six days, so come on back next Sunday, and we will remind ourselves again and again. Uh, If you are just joining us or visiting with us this evening, we've been working our way through the book of Acts. We decided to take a a one-week break from that just to think about the good news of the gospel, to think about our namesake as a church, Christ Church. We preach Christ every week, but thinking about his full and finished work in 1 John. Next week, perhaps in a timely sermon in Acts 5, we'll be thinking about the power of Christ but then as well as thinking through what that means for us as citizens of the kingdom of Christ, and if it is indeed ever appropriate to uh, participate in civil disobedience. So perhaps join us again next Sunday as we remind ourselves all over again of the good news of Jesus. But let me pray for our week as we do. Our Father, we confess to you that we are forgetful. We confess to you that we put our faith, even as your children, we continue to put our faith in our good works rather than Jesus's. But Father, we pray that you would give us great assurance. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would draw near to us and that we would be assured of our union with you. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would point us to the finished work of Christ, that we might walk by your grace. Father, we pray now that you would make us a church walking in our assurance of pardon and our nearness with Christ that we, you might transform us, that you might, by your grace, make us a people prepared for good works as you have created us to live, that we might not sin. Not because of our good efforts, but that we might have more flourishing joy, the abundant life, Lord Jesus, that you have come to give us. We pray now, Father, that you would give us a week full of assurance because of the finished work of Christ. Jesus Christ, the righteous. And we pray all of these things in his powerful name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.